Please stand with me in honor of reading of God's Word. Our scripture will be from Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 20 through 24 through chapter 2, verse 10. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this majesty, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. We'll invite you to open your Bibles once again, this time to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3. And we will be spending our time on all of a half verse. So uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19b, a bold request. Solomon was an unusually wise man, but he made at least a thousand foolish decisions. If you count one for every wife after wife number one. He lost sight of the spiritual nature of God's work. He lost sight of the priority of spiritual principles and spiritual motivations. And he did that in favor of solutions that were common in the world that was around him. God knew that the Jews would seek to have a king. They would seek political a political solution to their troubles they would ask for a king to be like the other nations but god told them that when they did there were some guidelines some commands for those kings for one their king must not seek after worldly political solutions for example he was not to multiply wives deuteronomy 17:17 17, 17. 
that was a common practice in their day, and actually it continued on and probably still somewhere today is practiced, where what you do in order to uh, solidify political alliances is you marry relatives of the surrounding king, so they're not likely to attack you when you're married to their daughter. And so Solomon did that. Having multiple wives also went against the theological truth of Genesis 1 and 2. From the very beginning, God intended that a man be married to only one woman. Yet instead of trusting God's ways, Solomon turned to commonly accepted solutions. He multiplied wives, and the result was, uh, we read in 1 Kings 11.4, His wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to Yahweh his God. And on top of that, the idolatry of his wives played a big part in the idolatry of their nation for centuries. Well, in the present day, God has given Christ authority over all things and has given Christ to the church. Currently, the church is God's primary organization for accomplishing His plan for history. That church should be driven by spiritual motivations. That's what Solomon should have remembered. It must pursue spiritual goals. Its character is to be spiritually or to be significantly different from the world. We must not be like Solomon, turning to worldly solutions. The church must be different, different from the world. Why? Because the church's character must reflect God Himself. But how does the church take on God's character? So think with me through one of several pictures I'm going to give us to to try to wrap our minds around the concept we're going to talk about today, this idea of God filling the church with all of His fullness. I want to go first to a picture that ties in with what Paul is teaching here about the church in Ephesians uh, that we've seen so far, especially in chapters 2 and 3. And it's a great way to illustrate what we have to try to understand today. This picture of God indwelling, God filling His people. I love thinking about the New Jerusalem that John prophesied about. He, he saw it in, in a vision coming down. He saw the future. And he presents to us in, in picturesque ways a truth that probably was hard to describe otherwise. And so he uses these pictures to help describe it the best, <clears throat> the best he could. <clears throat> that New Jerusalem, that holy city, and there's some similar... Uh, thinking as to what we just saw last time and the language used by Paul in Ephesians 3, talking about, you know, the love of Christ and, you know, the, the length and, you know, uh, breadth and height and depth and all that. You know, John says similar things about the New Jerusalem. He says, you know, he describes its length and its width and its height. And he says all of those dimensions are equal. So, in other words, it's a cube. And so that's the way he presents it to us. And he tells us that 
when God creates a new heavens and a new earth, that new Jerusalem will be in the new heavens and it's going to descend and then reside on the new earth. And then he says that that new Jerusalem will have the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. And that, I think, is significant to help us here. It's one picture to understand this. You see, in that day... God is going to dwell in that new Jerusalem. And that's John's way of talking about what we've already talked about in Ephesians 2 and 3, where the church now and then all of the saints of all of the ages are being built into this new temple that will be God's dwelling place for all eternity. And so John presents it a little differently, but it's the same basic truth. He just looks at it from and brings out some different aspects of it. But see... John tells us there in Revelation 21 that God is going to dwell in the midst of that new Jerusalem, that cube, that enormous cube. And if you think in terms of what Peter taught us and what Paul has taught us about us being these living stones that make that up, in that day when it's finished, apparently those stones are clear, crystal clear. That's what John, he uses the word, the Greek word for crystal clear. And God is dwelling in the midst of it. The God who dwells in it will so saturate the building that His glory will shine through those crystal clear walls. His brilliance will radiate from that temple. And I don't know if you've thought about it from that perspective. So as that new Jerusalem comes down, and that new Jerusalem, that's us. Okay, All of the people of God from all of the ages put together into one temple... And you know, whether it's shaped like an actual cube, you know, or is that a way that John was trying to describe something to us? We don't know. We'll, we'll wait and see. But in the midst of that building will be God. And there's not going to be a, a, a holy of holies anymore, he says, because God and the Lamb will be the holy of holies. And so we will be the temple. Two different words for temple there. We'll be that temple, that cube, if you will, and then... God will dwell in the midst of it, and His brilliance will radiate through it. Through it, And that can help us picture the church that Paul is describing here at the end of Ephesians 3.19. Pray for our church, that we would be thoroughly saturated with the fullness of God's character, so that it is obvious He dwells within, so that God's character will radiate outward in this brilliant glory. Pray that for our church. That's what Paul is doing here. He's praying for the Ephesian church. And this is it's stored in Scripture, recorded in Scripture for us. And we ought to be praying what Paul prays. And we should pray this for each other. Pray that God would so fill us, saturate us, that it's like... His glory is shining through us and His brilliance can be seen by those around us. You see, John foresaw the people of God when the temple had been completed. And its people are made perfect. And and I, I wondered as I thought about this, is that why 
John saw it as the walls of it being made of crystal clear jasper. Is it because we've been glorified? All of our sin has been removed. And so there's a sense in which we are being represented there as something that's crystal clear. Why? Not just because we don't have sin, but because the radiance of God's glory can, can permeate that perfectly, clearly, and shine right through it. Through it. We want, we want people to be able to look at us and see that God does live inside of us. And we as a church want people to look at our church and say, yeah, God dwells there. He dwells among that people. We can see His, His glory. Now, obviously, what John saw was once we're all glorified. You know, that's the goal. That's, and that's where Jesus is leading us as the captain of our salvation. He is leading us toward that goal. And so until then, our goal is to work as hard as we can to get as close as we can to that goal. And that's why Paul prayed for believers to be filled with God's fullness. And he prayed that now in this age. Well, what we're doing here in Ephesians 3 is we're getting close to the end. We see that in verses 14 through 19 that Paul made three requests for believers. He prayed for strength, for love, and for fullness. We already looked at the first two, the first being inner strength that he prayed for us. And then he prayed for us to experience the incomprehensible vastness of Christ's love and you'll be able to, you should be able to see connections there and overlap between those ideas of Christ's love and, and, and the breadth of it and everything with this fullness of God that we're talking about. So this third request is that the church would manifest God's fullness here at the end of verse 19. So let me back up to the beginning of the prayer when he finally resumes it in verse 14. So Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. For this reason, in light of all the wonderful, glorious things I've been telling you, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. And now the third request, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So I've entitled this a bold request, and, and others think the same, as I have on this next slide some quotes. J. Armitage Robinson wrote, No prayer that has ever been framed, talking about this last part of verse 19, has uttered a bolder request. F.F. Bruce pondered, could apostolic intercession reach farther than this? And then John Stott marveled that these are bold petitions. Climbers of this staircase become short of breath, even a little giddy. I'll try not to get giddy on you here. You don't want to see that, but... But I like that. I thought that was worth a chuckle, but uh, he's right, though. You know, these ought to excite us to the point of like, wow, Lord, this is amazing. And I hope we come away really impressed with what 
Paul is trying to get through to us. You know, if you're like me, you read this part of Ephesians, you know, and your head's already swimming with so much theology, right? And, you know, chapter 1, it's like, oh my, wow. You know, and Paul prays, and then he gets right into it again. And chapter 2, even more, wow. And and then chapter 3, and he gets there to this prayer, and, you know, and you're... you're reading through that, and he's talking about the love of Christ and, you know, and and, and just the, the vastness of that love, the incomprehensible vastness. And, and it's so easy at that point to let your mind just go right past this last little phrase, this last request of his, that we be filled to all the fullness of God. Now, your mind probably also has a little defense mechanism in there. It's like you read that and you're like, I have no idea what that means. I don't see how it's even possible for all of God's fullness to fill me or us, for that matter. And so your brain just goes on to the, this, the glorious uh, little benediction there that he gives in verses 20 and 21. So I want us to camp on this, this little half verse, this single prayer request, and dig into it. So that now, from in the future, as we come across this, and we'd say, I'm going to pray that. We don't just skip over this one, and we actually pray it. So first, Paul prayed for them to be filled. Let's talk about what filled and fullness mean. So one of those is a verb, and the other one is a noun, and they come from the same root. What do they they mean then? They have the idea of, no surprise, fullness or completeness. The word fullness in the New Testament usually refers to completeness, meaning that there there are no gaps, there's nothing missing. So when it's talking about fullness, that's the idea. There's nothing missing. It's not like, well, you know, three-quarters full or almost full or, no. The idea of fullness is that, completeness. And we're going to see in uh, that, in chapter 4, and I think I have the wrong reference there. Uh, I do, it should be 4.13, is it can describe maturity. He does use this in 123, but it has a different reference. So it can describe maturity. So you can see the connection there between completeness, fullness, maturity, right? Because that's what maturity is, is that, you know, you're, we would say you're a full-grown man or woman, right? In other words, you've reached that completeness. You're, You're done growing, okay? So Paul prayed not only that they be filled, but filled with fullness. Now, doesn't that sound redundant? Isn't filled fullness? You know, he says, I I pray that you be filled with fullness. Okay? What he wants to do is paint a picture of a container that's filled to the brim. There's no room for another drop. Or think about it as being so filled that that this container is completely saturated. What then is the measure of this fullness? How full? Well, second, Paul prayed that the measure of the fullness, how full, would be to all the fullness of God himself. So, again, verse 19b, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So, think here of a measuring cup. And so... There are markings on it. If you have a good measuring cup, you probably have one at home. It's got markings on it. You know, and it tells you, you know, how many ounces. And, or you get the idea here where I'm showing, you know, you've got, you know, it's half full. You know where half full is and where full, full is, right? And he's saying, okay, the measure that I'm talking about is to all the fullness of God. And so you see, I've got the line of fullness way over that. And you're like, okay, well, that's more than full. Okay, you're starting to get the point, okay? 
And, and we're going to be developing this, okay? So, the marking on the cup of Paul's prayer, so picture his prayer as a cup, the marking on it is to all the fullness of God. You see, that's a bold request, right? All the fullness of God. And you know, if you're tracking with me, you're thinking, oh, I don't see how that's possible. So how can I hold all of who God is? Well, before we get into that, the Greek word for to, or this idea of up to, Greek word ace, has the idea of movement toward a goal. And I, a minute ago, used the phrase filled to the brim. So how full did Paul pray that we be filled? To the brim? Well, no, not really. He prayed that we be filled up to the level of God's fullness. And that's why I put the line above. Okay, you really could put it way off, but then it'd be off the slide. Okay, so he wanted us to be filled up to the level of God's fullness. And that is a staggering thought. Again, okay, I mean, I can't even, I can't even contain me as a person or we as a church cannot contain even a tiny bit of God's, you know, who he is, much less his fullness, much less all his fullness, as Paul prays. So it is indeed staggering. But John Stott helps to explain it. He says, God's fullness or perfection becomes the standard or level up to which we pray to be filled. That's the marking on the cup. And so Paul is saying, you know, he's, he's praying this way and, and I'm encouraging us to pray. Pray that all of God's fullness fills us as a church. Do you pray that way? Or do you pray, you know, less bold, tamer prayers? Oh, Lord, just help us to even have a little bit of your love. And that's not the way Paul prayed. We want the fullness of who God is and love is a big part of that. So we would pray, Lord, fill us with the fullness of your love. So what is the fullness that fills God? Because he says it's, I pray that you be filled up to all the fullness of God. That's the standard. That's the level marker. The, the fullness of God. So what is the what fills God? Well, his fullness is his perfection, his attributes, his character. So think about it as this, that it, it's it's everything that God is, everything that makes him God. All of his character, his attributes, you know, the scriptures talk about his name, his nature, all, all that, that's the idea. That every aspect of who, what God is. Paul prayed that we would experience every aspect of God and every aspect of his character as is possible. Oh, may the fullness of God himself saturate us. Now... Why does Paul use the word all here? You know, isn't the word fullness exhaustive? Right? Full, fullness. You think he's talking in, you know, terms that kind of, that are exhaustive. But again, Paul's using this over-the-top language to drive this point home. He says, I pray that you might be filled, then filled with fullness. You see how this is just like, oh my, Paul, you know, stop. You know? And then filled with all fullness... And then filled with all of God's fullness. You see what he's doing? Again, as he uses this over-the-top language, he's just blowing our minds so that we, we stand back in awe and say, Oh my, you know, and you're praying for it, so that must be a reality. That there's a sense in which 
All of God's fullness can fill us as a church. God is infinite and we are finite. So, on the slide here, and, you know, obviously this doesn't do justice to the difference between us being finite. Now, I put us all together as a church. So, you know, it's not just one of us. We put all of us together. Okay? And we're that dinky little bucket there. Okay? And then God's character, His fullness, His attributes, His perfections, that's the big bucket. And you can see, okay, so if we're going to pour all of the liquid that's in the big bucket into the little bucket, we're going to have a problem, right? Because it can't hold all of that. That's what Paul's trying to say. Okay? That's part of the point when we're getting there. Okay? So, Basically, I think what Paul is praying is for us to be filled to overflowing. So you see on the next slide there, and I didn't completely do it justice, but you get the idea of what's getting ready to happen here. So the, the little bucket's full, and the big bucket's not even empty yet, not even close to being empty. It's just started, and it's starting to splash out, and it's just it's going to keep splashing out. Okay. So I think what, what Paul is trying to drive home to us is that we be filled to overflowing. So, yes, God's fullness fills us. But since we can't contain all of His fill, fullness at one time, it overflows. And so the fullness of God's character repeatedly just flows through us and through us and through us over and again. So that all of His fullness does fill us. It just can't do it all at once. That's not possible. Okay? You might picture it this way. And I told you I was going to give you some pictures. Here's another one. Picture two koi ponds in your backyard. One is really large and the other one is, is considerably smaller. And the large one empties into, you got a little, you know, this pretty little stream that, you know, goes over some rocks and stuff. And, and you got some nice flowers around it. And it goes into the little pond. Okay? Well, and you have it set to where that will be a, a constant flow. Okay? And then the way, what people will do, because, you know, it won't take long and the big pond's going to be empty, is that you have a pump that pumps the water from the little one back up to the big one and it just keeps circulating like that. And that's kind of the idea, in a sense, of what he's saying here. Is that over time, the whole of the large pond does fill the, the small pond. Just not all at once, right? It's over time, it just keeps flowing through it. And I think that's the idea Paul wants us to walk away with here, is filled to overflowing. It just keeps overflowing, but God pours all of His fullness through us, or at least that's what Paul is praying for. Okay, now what does that mean for us? Well, when we look at the book of Ephesians and we see, what does he say about fullness? And, and there are different things that he touches on throughout the book. And these are not exhaustive. This is, these are just a few things that he, that he picks up and brings out. First is God's power working in the church, uh, Ephesians 1.23. That was the, the setting, you remember, as we rounded out chapter 1. It was the power of God. That was the setting. And then he talked about um, the church being the fullness of Christ, the one who fills all in all. And then we just came across last week the previous uh, idea, this the love of Christ. The context of this prayer uh, in the dominant theme is the love of Christ there, 319. And so here this fullness is, is prayed for right in the middle of that, that context. And so the love of God, and we're going to see as we get into chapters 4 through 6 that, that love is going to play a very large part in the rest of the book, okay? 
then the influence and control of the Holy Spirit, where he tells us, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, 5.18. And again, it is that the Holy Spirit being poured into us in, in the way that is just overflowing. And then the goal is the spiritual maturity of the church. That's what where this whole idea of fullness is going, is spiritual maturity in 4.13. He's going to talk about after the, the gifts that the Spirit gives, or Jesus gives through His Spirit, that the, there's going to be this building up of the church. To what goal? And, and what He does is He ties these things together. He says, okay, you've got this idea of you, you become a mature man, thinking of the church as, a, as one person. You're this mature man that was originally separated Jews and Greeks. Now they're together into one new man. And now it's going to be a full-grown, spiritually full-grown man, if you will. So there's the maturity. But the maturity is also Christ's likeness, the way He's going to develop it there. And so fullness, or at least the goal of it, is this, is this idea of maturity and Christ-likeness. And again, that idea of maturity reflects what fullness means, completeness with nothing missing. As it matures, the church is intended to shine with the brilliance of God's character. See, that's what Paul wants us... That's what he prayed for, and that's what the Holy Spirit wants us to pray for, for each other as a church. That we would continue growing in maturity. He's going to tell us how to do that when we get into chapter 4. Okay, He's going to go into a good bit of detail. And as we mature as a church, we are intended to shine with the full brilliance of God's character. Pray that for each other. Pray, Lord, I lift up our whole church to you. And you can also pray for the church at large, you can pray for other churches, but definitely pray for our church. I lift up our church to you, Lord, that we would be so saturated with your fullness, your character, your attributes, everything that makes you God. I pray that we'd be so filled that the full brilliance shines out and reflects your character. So that when people have any kind of interaction with our church... They can see, oh, it's obvious that God dwells there in the assembly of the saints. Not in this building, per se, but in the assembly of the saints. Paul is praying that the fullness of who God is will be experientially realized in church life. In other words, it becomes something, a reality. It really will happen. These are not just nice things to pray for that sound good. He really wanted this to happen for the Ephesian church. And God wants that to happen for our church. As we, you know, I thought on this a little bit this week about how, thought my way through Ephesians and these different characteristics of God's that Paul touches on. And I just picked a few. Remember, we, we talked about uh, God's love, His grace, His mercy, His kindness. We're going to be looking at His oneness when we get into chapter 4. And there's so many more. We want those to so fill us that they overflow in abundance to everyone around us. Our Christ-likeness ought to be obvious. People who come in here, people who interact with us through the week, they shouldn't say, you know, I, they're, they're pretty nice, but I can't tell the difference between them and a Mormon or a Muslim or an atheist or an agnostic or... You know, because those those can be nice people too. 
Now, it doesn't mean that you're just constantly preaching the gospel to them. You know, I don't mean that. But that they can see the character of God so obviously in us, and especially in our church. The church ought to embody God's glorious character. Because that's, that's where we're going. That's where Jesus is taking us with that new Jerusalem. You know, remember, and, and if you doubt whether the church is part of that, the church is a key part of that. Why? Because John tells us that, guess what the foundation is? The apostles. Okay, and, and remember, then Israel is a big part of that too because the, the gates are the 12 tribes. All the people of God from all the ages are going to be in that one final temple. And God is going to dwell in it. And the temple is going to be purified to the place where the walls are crystal clear. We are crystal clear. And God's glory, will His brilliance will shine through that as He makes that His permanent dwelling place. Think about all these deep spiritual truths we're being taught. I mean, we keep marveling, and, and Paul does, and so he, he does this a lot. We are in Christ. And that's just an amazing thought. We are in Christ. But then we're also taught that Christ is in us. Okay? Both are true. How? I don't know. It, but both are true. We're in Him. He's in us. And then we're learning here, God fills us with His fullness. Colossians, we read earlier, Kevin read for us, all the fullness of God dwells in Christ. And then at the last verse of Ephesians 1, all the fullness of Christ dwells in His church. We are the fullness of Him who fills all in all. These are grand truths. These are things that ought to change. This ought to be completely game-changing for us. So that we don't just go through in our, our, our mundane, everyday lives as if nothing has really happened except now I'm going to heaven. That we are transformed individually, but especially corporately. And as I said, you know, the individual has to happen before the corporate's going to happen. So that we need both of those. That we're transformed in being a vehicle to display God's radiant glory. All the fullness of Christ dwells in His church. It is glorious, but is it obvious? That's the question we should ask ourselves. And because we are still sinners and we're still in in process, it's not as obvious as it should be. And so we should pray. We should pray this with Paul. Is it obvious in our goals? Is it obvious in our motives? Is it obvious in our guiding principles? Is it obvious in our character? Are we more like Solomon? It's like, oh, you know, I'd be really smart if I marry all these, you know, women from surrounding nations and keep us out of war. Or do we think with spiritual principles that Paul is teaching us here? Well, as we come to the table, thinking back on what we read from Colossians 2.9, Paul said, In Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. All the fullness of deity. God's fullness dwelt in Christ. And that fullness of God's character was lifted up for all to see when He was lifted up on the cross. And so as we come to the table, it should remind us of God's fullness. The fullness of God, which is in Christ. 
because all of his fullness filled Christ. And then Christ gave himself on the cross and he was lifted up so that everyone could look at him. And even to this day, we in our minds look up to him on the cross and we see there hung the fullness of God manifesting himself. And without eyes to see, it looked like a sad, pathetic day when this good man was murdered. But for those with eyes to see, we, we behold the glory of God and the brilliance of His glory shining forth from that cross when our Savior said, it is finished. And we look back on that. And that's why we love the cross. That's why we come to the table each week. We want to remember that. The brilliance of God shining from the fullness in Christ. As He revealed to us, this is our God.